City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, the Jake is an acre of the tower. 901, we're here early today. This is ridiculous. We're only supposed to be on to 9 o'clock. And it's uh, <laughs> City Limits. It's the fifth Wednesday of the month, so we've got a, um, we're going to be looking at some housing and urban issues today. Um, and who's in the studio? Eugenia Zubchenko is over there pressing Good buttons. Good morning, everyone. Kevin is very incensed because he caught public transport to the studio yeah, today, and he was 10 minutes early. Atrociously early. It's dreadful when public transport proves to be efficient. I even walked up from Nicholson Street to still got here really, isn't that ridiculous? Mark Owen's over there, he's not taking this seriously at all, and he... Uh, <laughs> I Mark, never do. Mark's a former co-presenter of this program until he flew off to England on a plane that he hated doing, Yes, um, to, because he thought the world was coming to an end at that time, so you're still as optimistic as ever, Mark? No, no, I'm slightly less optimistic now. All <laughs> oh, right, down, <laughs> gone downhill, have we? I'm Kevin Healy, Hello, and this is City Limits. Mark's in today because he's going to talk to us about a paper he's written... Um, called The Case for a Radical Town Planning Approach as Part of a Holistic Approach to the Climate Emergency. Um, and you're listing yourself as from Population Permaculture and Planning Holistic Activism.net, Mark. This is true. I've just realised it's a bit of a mouthful, really. It isn't is, it? isn't the it? Case for a Radical Town Planning Approach as Part of a Holistic Approach to the Climate. I might need yeah. to reword that. This is still yeah. a draft, really. That's right. <laughs> Let's workshop <laughs> it right now. Let's workshop it. Yeah, no, all right. <laughs> this is why I'm here, really. You just need to help me proofread Do you it. feel it's some sort of approach, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> well, here you go. You've got, you got the journal on your case about repeating your words. Well, yeah. It is. I think that approach is an important important word in this, yes, yes. <laughs> well, anyway, we'll get back to that in a couple of minutes because we're going to go to you very quick, pretty shortly. In the second half of the program, we've got Dr Kate Shaw from Melbourne um, in their planning geography department, whatever the thing's called, and she'll have to tell us what her title is because I can always remember her phone number but never remember her title at Melbourne. Um, but she always tells us. And Kate's going to talk to us about broader housing issues, particularly the government flogging off properties. She did look a couple of, you know, two or three years ago at the the Kensington estate and how, in fact, the developer got that for way below real cost. And um, there's a number of number of things going on at the moment where housing's being all land's been given away and developers have been called in rather than public housing. So we'll talk about some of those issues with Kate and ask her to comment on what you say as well because there's a dovetail here in terms of planning, obviously. And, uh, yes, indeed, indeed. And so we'll do it. We're going to have a cup of tea first, though. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to, on air, because last week she said you did it before we actually went to air. So I'm going to ask her, which cup do you want today, Eugenia? I definitely want the one on the right. That's your right. Yes, sorry, my right, not your right. Yes, right, okay. That one's yours. Mm, It's got a retro feel to it, hasn't it? Yes, okay. Well, there you are. We'll just pour this tea as people can hear. And um, you've missed this little ritual on Wednesday morning, yes, you must. It's all coming back (laughs) (laughs) from that long ago. (laughs) Oh, I see it coming back in memory. Okay, Um, is my microphone on? I think it is. Yes, it is. It is good. Okay, we can hear you. There you are. Okay, that's our cup of tea sorted out. Look, just a couple of items before we go on. Um, Mark, about the time you were actually on the show a couple of years ago, Mm. um, the Sky Rail was in the news, and the Herald Sun was running its big campaign about how Sky. Rail was going to 
d- destroy people's lives. People were all moving out along the, particularly along the Dandenong mm, line. I remember. Um, overlooking their backyards. They had pedophiles in trains perving on their kids' legs. Oh, that, that, was, that was one of the accusations. Well, what do you know? The story came out in The Age in the last couple of weeks um, that more than a year after the first train ran along elevated rail lines in Melbourne's southeastern corridor, residents say Skyrail has increased quality of life and added to the vibrancy of communities. And so realtors say fears of a property price plunge have been assuaged. And one one person who moved out because of it says she now goes back and enjoys the life under the thing and the, the playground with her family and you yeah. know etc etc yeah. that's right so it creates open space and it increases yeah. permeability of course with sky rail so, that's right um, and in fact we said that at the time that then yeah. we had john stone in from melbourne making the point and john mcpherson now making the point that you open up those spaces under it and um, you create community life under there and you can you have do. modal interchanges and all sorts of things exactly yeah. and that's the kind of thing we need we need those interchanges we need that interconnectivity um, so yeah, I've I've always been a big believer in Skyrail, and it's good mm. to see that the residents are starting to read from the same page. So yes. that they're happy. So that's right. I expect no more scare yeah. campaigns about Skyrail from here on. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't. I'll be curious to see how the other lines go. Whether they follow that similar dramatic yes. trajectory. Oh, they're doing it along a number of lines. They're talking. Uh, they're currently holding surveys on the upfield line because there's a number of crossings about this do happen mm. there and there. They fact they had a meeting last week with the community about whether it should go over under where it should go, etc. Yeah, but, and yeah, they're doing yeah. the Frankston line as well, aren't they? Yeah, so that's happening. I, w- yeah. I haven't heard that much about community protests down there. No, I haven't heard a lot about community protests recently. I think they're doing something at Reservoir as well. I mm. think they're putting uh, mm. the line over, over yeah. Reservoir, which right. really yeah. needed to be done, to be honest with you. Yeah, so yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, you'll be pleased to know also, given that um, there's an item here that... Uh, now the election's over, there will be a real push against the building unions, and they've increased the fines to a massive amount seven hundred and something per per item for the union or whatever forty two thousand for individuals uh, and there's numerous cases pending that would add up to billions. Mm. Uh, because the unions you know mainly right you know rising out of taking you know asking employers to do crippling things like provide safety for workers, that sort of thing. You know, it's pretty awful. Um, are, you, are they applying this retroactively? You said there was well, a bunch the, of cases. Well, the law is changing. The the, num- the fine thing is changing about now. It's coincidental with the election in a sense, although they've probably put it up thinking they might lose. Mm. Um, but then the employers are calling out for the government to really get stuck into them. And the new minister, um, Porter... Um, Christian Porter, which is interesting, he's another Christian. Um, Christian Porter has said he's going to be he's going to be hard line on the industry, on the industry, but particularly on the construction unions. Um, so they're copping these thousands and millions in fines. They've paid millions already this year, or they've been fined millions already this year. Yet just the other week, in last week, in um, in, a, in an environmental protection act case, Porsche, the um, luxury car company, which um, which let out um, thousands of litres of, of pollution into the Yarra River. Um, oil leak put millions of litres of water in the Yarra River and the maximum fine was $700,000 and it got no penalty. It got off with, without, without, a, um, a, an, a, without a commitment without a committal, without a sentence, um, but also well, got a sentence, got $130,000 um, to give to charity and 32000 for costs. 
So it ended up with well, 100,000 to charity. So 130,000 roughly it ended up having to pay for what could have been a 700,000 spill. Mm. So what they're getting fined is, is, is much less than what unions are forced mm. to pay if they take safety issues under the current acts and end up in court. Mm. Um, and um, Jeremy Gobbo of that family... <laughs> QC for Porsche said the luxury car brand had spent years building its profile and was extremely anxious not to tarnish its reputation. So the bench decided it shouldn't tarnish its reputation and it um, it just got that uh, that give to charity and um, and there's no charge against them. There you are. Doesn't surprise well, me to be frank with you. No, no. no I mean, it's a bit the the ideological warfare that the political right have. Put on the unions has just been non-stop for the last twenty, more than twenty years. I yeah, imagine. it was a leak from a tank they had at their their plant there, and it uh, it overflowed. Um, but uh, the the EPA estimated it was uh, leaking at a rate of a liter every minute mm. while it was happening. Mm. And, uh, oh yeah. Anyway, the uh, double standards. Oh, well, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> Good Reminds God. Reminds me of our friends at Stony Creek. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, And given we mentioned we were talking in the kitchen, Mark, about my attitude to Bob Hawke and his, uh, his I know you're sell still, out of the working class over the years. You're still uh, sad for, I know you're still sad. Oh, I'm very upset. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, um, unfortunately, Albanese, the new leader, has already come out and said that um, that workers and unions or employers and unions virtually have common interests as well because Hawke's argument was that the workers and unions um, and bosses had a common interest. It was almost symbiotic, you know, the relationship between unions and, and workers and their bosses. Um, and now Albanese has come out and virtually said the same thing, that we need a good relationship between these people in um, et cetera, et cetera. So... It's looking like it's going to be a great, great breakthrough for Labor. Uh, now they're also decided they should back off having policies because they were quite dangerous, obviously. <laughs> um, I know, I know. It's yeah. um, it's 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 yeah. sad. You know, when um, Labor won the uh, lost to the election, should I say, lost the election in the UK in 2015. Everyone thought they would go back towards the direction of Tony Blair, but they actually went to the left with Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. And um, and then the following election, you know, they expected Jeremy Corbyn to have massive loss, but actually the, the, the government ended with a smaller, you know, yes. had to make a, it was a hung sure. parliament. So it just goes to show that actually, you know, going more to the right in reaction to a liberal win is not necessarily the right the right path, no, no, Theresa you know. May was hobbling around with a bullet in the foot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeremy Corbyn gave her a bullet that the other guy, whose name I've forgotten... Um, well, she gave it to herself. She, 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 remember she called the election to increase her majority. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Went backwards. Yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> Bad yes. luck for Therese. Yes. Um, anyway, she's about out now. Um, just we, before we go to you, Mark, and we'll go to you right away after this, we'll mm. take a short break or something, but... Um, on the programme last week, we talked to Dave Kerrin, the union activist, about where we go from here after the election, etc. I concluded by saying we can any day now we can expect the government to come out and keep pushing its 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 campaign to wrest all that lovely, lovely superannuation money from the unions as they've been trying to do for so long. Mm. And they put it in the Royal Commission. In fact, Kelly O'Dwyer put it in the Royal Commission, but it backfired on them because they found the other lot were the ones at fault that they actually want to give the money to. But they haven't stopped. And the front page, two days later, Friday last week, Financial Review, front page, there's a kick-ahead, re 
retail funds, consumer groups versus unions pushed to curb industry superpower. Retail superannuation funds are pushing the re-elected Morrison government to quickly reshape the $650 billion default superannuation system um, and changes that would erode the advantages enjoyed by union-influenced industry funds. And, of course, the advantages they enjoy is that union members get more money out of it in the end, but that's nothing to do with handing it to the banks. But as thought, already they're on to that, so that's going to be a... Like the other industrial areas, it's going to be a major campaign in the Indeed. next three years. Oh, yes. So that's off to that. Let's have a quick break, Mark. I'll come back and talk to you about your paper. Thank you. One, two, three, four, five. Breakdown, baby. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio, bringing you coverage of community issues and events. This is Beta Base Camp. Welcome to the Little Red Tulangi Treehouse. As you said, I'm down at the East West Tunnel ticket, as it usually does, starts at 5.30am. Uh, the Lincoln Melbourne Authority have come here in the middle of the night and set up another drill rig here on Gold Street. Police were pretty keen to defend that with all their resources this morning. And I think for Australians, in order to know ourselves, really fully know ourselves, in order to mature, we need to understand Aboriginal culture. We need to embrace it and realise that in coming here, you're now part of the longest continuing culture in the world. We need your support. Subscribe today. Call 94198377 now. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Well, who we are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty. It's time. And roll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. Okay, back on City Limits and Mark Owen in the studio today. Back after, uh, oh, well, it's almost a year. Well, it's a year. You came on early last year just to have a chat to us, but you'd left the program. But, Mark, population, permaculture and planning and holisticactivism.net, you're putting yourself down as, but mm. the case for a radical town planning approach as part of a holistic approach to the climate emergency. Mark. Yes, yes. Come on, Kevin, be nice. What's it all about? Well, okay, so basically um, we have a climate emergency and it's, extremely serious and I don't think I can say anything really to, 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 to emphasize how serious it is. So what I'm now talking about is, is I'm working with people who recognize the seriousness of the climate emergency and we're putting together policies that we can put in place as part of a wider plan to rapidly decarbonize our economy and draw carbon down as rapidly as possible. Um, so what's... Um, what the Council for Action on the Climate Emergency asked me to do uh, was to write the town planning fact sheet. So I thought, OK, this is a, a good opportunity to actually put into words and to create a list of the uh, steps that I think that we need to be taking from a town planning perspective in order to, to tackle the climate emergency in a meaningful way. Now, it's going to sound very, very radical, but I need to emphasise to people that... Business as usual cannot continue. Um, we have to move away from, you know, a pro-growth, growthist, neoliberal society. It's something very, very different. Um, so while these, while these um, steps may sound radical, anything less radical than this is probably or quite likely going to lead to the extinction of life on Earth. So I'd make no apology for it. Um, I don't care anymore. On this show, Mark. 
What's that, sorry? We love Radical on this show. Oh, I know. Well, this is, this, this is why I like 3CR. You know, we have a good, a good relationship. So, yes. That's good because Radiothon's on in two weeks. We'll and <laughs> and our theme is Power time. Radical Radio. Oh, so, that's tune right. in, everyone. That's right. There we go. There so, we in go. fact, give, give lots of money to Radiothon. In fact, in terms of Radiothon, your, radio, your phone call yesterday was uh, very badly timed. <laughs> we'll have to hit you. Yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. This is, uh, this is a radio station I'd be happy to give money to. And I have, and I do, of course. I'm a... I'm I'm a member and give money. But yes, so we have eight steps. So um, the, the first important thing that we need to consider is that there are thousands, tens of thousands of empty houses, empty homes around Australia. And what we need to do is we need to rapidly move away from a society that's reliant upon pro-development. So uh, much of our economy at the moment is, is, is based around property development and it's based around pouring concrete, basically. And concrete has a, a huge environmental impact. Um, it's, it's one of the big ones. So reducing our concrete consumption has to, has to end quickly. Um, but the good news is, is that there are, you know, many, many empty houses, as I said, around Australia. So the very, the very first step is to focus on retrofitting and inhabiting all of the empty houses and homes in Australia as a priority as the first uh, approach um, from the planning perspective of dealing with a climate emergency. Um, yeah. And do you want to just explain for people why concrete is a bad thing, why it has a, such an environmental impact? Well, the energy involved and the resources and the carbon that goes into making concrete is, um, is just uh, incredible. I think it's the third, the, third largest, um, the third largest contributor to climate change or certainly very, very high up there with them all. Um, so, um, you know, obviously uh, moving away from coal is important. Uh, reducing our car dependency is important. Changing uh, the way we farm into regenerative farming is important so we can draw carbon into the soil and into plants. Um, but reducing our addiction to concrete as a way of building economies has to, mm. has to end. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because I think not many people would make such a direct link between climate change and town planning people talk about kind of more sustainable transport yes. options or yes. um, i don't know reducing the amount of energy that people need to use but yeah it's interesting like you say the the materials we use to build our sprawling cities literally have a very big environmental impact themselves they do and and the other great tragedy is is that a lot of the new buildings that are going up now are not very robust so they don't have a shelf life um they don't have a long shelf life. So only, um, I think um, Professor Buxton, before he retired, told me that some of them will only last about 40 years. Mm -hmm. So not only are we putting all of this carbon-intensive concrete into the suburbs and into the urban fringes, um, it's just they're going to have to come down uh, within a generation or two and at even more greater carbon expense, you know, carting it into landfill, and building something else to replace it. So it's unsustainable on, on a large number of fronts. You know, a lot of the new buildings that are going up in Melbourne are often built for investors, and the, the standards are just not there because people mm. are buying them as places to rent out rather than to live in. And, um, and how recently is that, um, has that kind of decrease in quality come about? It's it's happened. I mean, f from my own observations, I'd say that it's it's happened within the last twenty years or so. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly um, 
it's certainly been noticeable, you know, in the last 15 years. Mm. Um, and I've heard uh, a lot of uh, a lot of feedback, and there's been um, a lot of reports of really poor standard buildings, not just of, of high density, but also of low density buildings on on the urban fringe as well. Mm. Um, and that's a real worry because, uh, and this is all part of the market deregulation that's been going on in the construction industry. Uh, and then, of course, we have other problems with asbestos getting into the mix as well and flammable cladding and that kind of thing. How, how do you get into these um, these homes that are vacant? I mean, you're saying mm. we have to retrofit mm. them all, but how do you get to do that in terms of who, whoever might own them or whatever? I mean, Well, as I say, this, this sounds radical, but we will um, – but as I say, it's a climate emergency. Uh, it's all hands on deck um, – we're in the sixth mass great extinction so we'll have to compulsory purchase homes we'll just have to just fill them it's just like if you have an empty home it we're going to put someone in it you know mm. and the economics of how that works mm. um people who own multiple homes will have to give some of them up you know it's it's the whole the whole idea of but housing market will collapse under my scheme anyway so let, let's <laughs> we're talking about a post a post neoliberal climate emergency economy because we're not going to be at the moment our housing market is propped up by you know by by providing increased demand and all that kind of thing and and building and the property industry that will all have to change mm. um so it will literally be a matter of saying we're just going to fill the homes and we're going to do it in the equitable way that we can and we're going to ease people's pain and transition to this new system. But, yeah, a society that has tens of thousands of homes going empty while we're building on the urban fringe with carbon-intensive mm. concrete or, or, or building high density in the inner suburbs, mm. it's, got to, it's got to end because yeah. it can't go on. Yeah, as you say, if we're trying to reduce our um, environmental impact... We can't have an economy that depends on increasingly no. sprawling out our suburbs and building more poor quality housing, right? Absolutely not. And this this brings me to the other point that all all development on the urban fringe uh, needs to stop. And so that that would happen. So any development yeah. that happens beyond the fringe would have to be in relation to um, some kind of project that's involved in in the low carbon economy so if if for example you're creating a regenerative farming area or you're in a, a rewilding replanting reforestation and it and it requires a couple of houses to be built or a small community to be built to allow that to happen then sure we can have some some developments on the fringe but any development beyond the urban fringe has to be connected to this idea of rapidly decarbonizing. Well, that also goes to the you know, the, the recent report about the extinction of species mm. uh, that we that that's occurring in many you know, around the world, but here in, in in terms of our development, the expansion of the urban environment means we're taking over the natural habitat of those creatures, and uh, you know the western grasslands of Melbourne, which. Uh, uh, we've talked about a lot on this program, but 10 years ago, Brumby, as Premier at the time, promised a 41,000 hectare grassland, etc., um, reserve mm. to preserve. Well, that's only preserving some of it. The rest is all going to go. So it really exactly. is. And I mean, it's it's just it's like folding a piece of paper in half or something and then keep folding it. You know, yeah, it's if, dangerous to talk but, about reserves in that that's context, right. isn't it? But 10 years later, according to a bloke called Clifford Hayes, a Sustainable Australia MP in the upper house here, um, he says at the current rate we're getting the land, it will take a century, not ten years, to get even that little bit he wants to save. So exactly. Um, yeah. So we and of course, you know, the 
grasslands are important because there's some quite um, fragile and uh, fragile flora and fauna, but particularly mm. you know, the, the famous growling grass frog and those oh, things sorry. who are, are all in great danger mm. as Absolutely. we develop. And, and listeners uh, should listen back to our episode on Melbourne frog frogs. species if <laughs> they're right. interested in learning more about locals. Indeed. The local uh, <laughs> amphibian right. inhabitants. We had Melbourne Water in talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. And of course, of course, the food, the food bowl as well is very important. So that's being mm. encroached upon and built on. Um, you know, I know when I, I I was staying in Ocean Grove for a while, and I would take the bus from Geelong to Ocean Grove and see beautiful, beautiful growing land being covered in housing. So. There are multiple reasons why we need to end urban sprawl. Obviously, we want to reduce car dependency, which is um, important for climate change, and we want to preserve um, biodiversity, which is important for climate change and reversing the sixth mass great extinction. And we don't want, and we want to be uh, growing as much food as we can close to where we live because we need to be reducing our food miles. So <clears throat> that's that's absolutely critical that that uh, that, that stops. Um, and then it brings to the other area. Well, a lot of people say, well, if you're going to end urban sprawl, then the response is to build upwards. But, of course, that's problematic too as well because building upwards, um, what's happening is under the current system is they upzone land so that you can uh, subdivide it. And that means uh, there's no distinction between which houses should or shouldn't be demolished. It just means if your house is in a zone that can be demolished, it can be pulled down. So what we're doing is we're losing a lot of really good housing that could be lived in, retrofitted, and and gardens and lands that could be used to grow food um, to often fairly low standard, sort of high higher density development. Um, and of course, it also increases the land value and gentrifies neighbourhoods at the same time. Once you start upzoning neighbourhoods, so um, what I'm saying is, is that we 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 can't live in a in a society that's constantly demolishing good quality, robust housing and using energy to take all of that into landfill. And what we need to be doing is we need to be better utilising the housing that we already have. Uh, it might mean more share housing, filling more bedrooms. Um, but you can also build granny flats in gardens and there's other things like yurts and tiny houses that can be incorporated into neighbourhoods. But what we don't want to be doing is is needlessly pulling housing down. The good news is, or the good news or the bad news, whichever way you look at it, there are actually a lot of houses in Melbourne that are actually not worth saving and not worth retrofitting. Um, and those theoretically um, could be could be replaced. But if we do replace them, we want to replace them with some kind of public housing or cooperative-style housing um, so that densification doesn't increase land values and it doesn't gentrify. And what it does is it brings, it brings a wider demographic of people into the neighbourhood. Um, and, and so when you yes. talk about um, retrofitting existing houses, mm. you, are you talking about sort of like single-family bungalows that would exist in the suburbs now? Yeah. And, and yeah, what look, kind of changes are you imagining? Well... You know, I live in a I live in a bungalow with um, eight other people, um, and you know we have a granny flat, and we have someone who lives in a yurt in the backyard, and we have um, a big communal area, and we have a productive gar- a fairly productive garden. We've just jarred up lots of olives, and we have a vegetable garden. So I suppose this is a good. I suppose this is one of the better examples of how you can utilise um, the, the existing housing that we have. Remember, a lot of people in low incomes live in share houses. Mm. So if you if you pull housing down and replace them with higher density, you're not going to get 
the kind of demographic who can only afford to live in shared houses living in the higher density that's replaced those 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 mm. houses. So unless you're building swathes of new public housing, which is just not going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately, it's going to have to be a massive shift. We we have to rely upon our existing housing stock as a way of providing homes for people on lower incomes, like people such as myself. Um, so what we can do is we can retrofit those and we can um, grow some of our food in the garden. Some of the gardens in some of the middle suburbs are quite productive. They've been used by um, especially people who came here from Greece and Italy. You know, they've created amazing gardens. You can, And, um, and of course, there's a lot of... Um, trees and that kind of thing which are important for a cooling effect and and uh stopping runoff we 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 don't want to concrete and seal too much of the of the suburbs because that more means more runoff into the rivers um so i i I do think that the time to be pulling down large numbers of houses at massive environmental cost and replacing them with 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 substandard high density concrete buildings is is not the right time there is actually a lot of room to, to build higher density um, co-op style housing in the suburbs because there are a lot of houses that are probably not not worth keeping. There's quite a lot of fairly low standard building stock mm-hmm. in the middle suburbs. So it, 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 I don't think there's going to be a time where we're going to say, oh, crikey, you know, there's, there's, there's nowhere to build. Mm-hmm. But what it does mean is it means that we will select only the worst housing stock for demolition and we won't see really good, decent housing pulled down to build flats when when because those some ones. developer wants to get uh, twenty times the number of people on the on the site or something. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. that's that's right. It's about valuing and working with what we already have. And David Holmgren, the co-founder of Permaculture, in his Retro Suburbia book, uh, talks a lot about this. This isn't a new concept. Um, that he he talks a lot. So I recommend Retro Suburbia by David Holmgren. There's a big thick book on it, and it explains how retrofitting the suburbs and growing more of our food in the suburbs and re- better utilizing what we already have has to be a key part of our approach. We're going to have to ring Kate Shawberry shortly. Yeah, sure. so, uh, uh, what are the other main points at this stage? Okay, so um, and then also, of course, um, retrofitting spaces that are that are not housing but can be converted into housing and that kind of thing. So, like in the outer suburbs, for example, which sort of very very low low density suburbia and a lot of double garages. You can you could you know increase densities right by uh, like converting double garages into into into. Um, units, places to live, you know, that kind of thing. So that kind of radical thinking, converting office space into housing. So so re- better retrofitting the other spaces that we already have. Um, the other point is about um, uh, ending road building. So basically, we, we that's that should just be obvious, but obviously just focusing on Certainly public transport. Certainly to listeners of our show. Yes, yes. You so. didn't read the front page of the Herald Sun last week, did you? <laughs> just, just build it, it says, the <laughs> east-west link. <laughs> so, yeah, the focus is on improving public transport, but also improving walkability and, and cycling. But we're not going to get public transport to every corner of Melbourne. Uh, we're not within the time of the climate emergency. Mm. So, But what we can do is we can improve interconnectivity for cycling and public transport nodes, which is another reason why Skyrail is good, because mm. all, all that kind of thing. So uh, finish off the Skyrail projects, all that. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so that's, that's another um, important one. Um, and, um, yeah, and um, regional towns uh, may, may grow a little as well as a result of... Um, uh, the, the post-carbon economy. We're going to need to be drawing huge amounts of carbon into the soil. Um, so a lot of regional Just on Australia... That, on that one, how, mm. how do you grow regional towns 
without doing what we were just talking about and encroaching on the natural habitat of the the life around those mm. towns. Well, when I say grow them, I don't mean grow them massively. Uh, there are a lot of empty housing in regional towns. So um, I, when I went to the Flinders Ranges last year, I was uh, amazed by the uh, number of empty houses there are. So obviously, step one is to, is to refill and re, re, reuse the empty housing. But regional towns wouldn't grow massively. They would grow by, you know, maybe 10%. And you would make sure you do it in a way that is in 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 symbiosis with the with the carbon sequestration so it'd be part of a wider project it's not like what the state government want to do and just blatantly say oh we'll deal with massive population growth by just growing regional australia like just you know but you know in order for regional australia to grow um with this current rate of population like geelong and places like that would have to double in size with every few years you know Mm. just to absorb melbourne's well geelong's almost reaching torquay now i mean yeah exactly i think you talked about it but those developments along that road i mean it's just mm. disgusting. Yeah, it? absolutely. So we're not talking about massive, massive expansion of regional towns. We're just talking about the fact that more people may be living in the regions as part of a, a, a decarbonisation, you know, drawing carbon into the soil projects and, and regenerative farming and tree planting. And and I think that we can mostly get refill existing housing, but we might need to build a little bit more. Yeah. All right, okay. Look, we'll take a break. We'll get Kate on the line and we'll ask her to comment on all this and then we'll talk to her also about uh, government land, well, which what you're talking about as well in my mind, government land being utilised for better purposes than it is. All right, welcome back to City Limits, everyone. Our um, next guest is Dr Kate Shaw from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Kate. Yeah. Good morning. How are you? Kate, as I said earlier in the show, I never think of what your title is at Melbourne. Tell us again. Oh, don't worry about it. Okay, okay. I'm an urban geographer at Melbourne University. The title title lessness or whatever you are, um, Kate Shaw. (laughs) Kate, um, you've you've listened to what um, Mark had to say. Any comments on that? I agree with every word he says. Um, that's that's reassuring. Can you expand on that a bit? Um, well, I think I think look, the, his problem is that he's just too holistic. Um, nobody, nobody in in any of the disciplines that he's covered this morning actually thinks across boundaries the way that he does. Um, mm. Yeah, this is this is it. I I agree. It, it is holistic, and it. it, it and, but I, I can't see any other approach now. No, 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 we, we, I'm, not, I'm, not re- I'm not really meaning that as a criticism. Oh, no, I, 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 I appreciate that. No, I, I really do. Um, but I, I'm going to put it... I, I feel as though people will, will just say, oh, you know, a lot of people will, will look at me and say you're kind of heads in the clouds. But I, I, I'm just going to say it from now on because yeah. the situation is so serious. I, I'm just going to say what I think. And if it means crossing disciplines are, are just going to do it and it, if it annoys it people be, in those disciplines I'm just it has to be done to, yeah um yeah. but i mean it's just it's, uh, you know moving moving from construction materials um to questions of gentrification and densities and you know i mean not many um architects really comprehensively think um in those kinds of terms and they really need to but um, I think there's a lot to be said for your critique of concrete. Um, Thank you. Um, and I've, I've been actually paying a bit more attention to, um, to CLTs, to you know, renewable timber, um, and the technologies that allow timber construction, which is now actually, as I'm sure you read, um, our listeners know, uh, getting um, quite tall. Mm. Um, 
They've been building some high-rise buildings in mm. timber, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cross-laminated timber yeah. Mm. Is, mm. This, is this um, kind of gluing together of thin planks of timber so mm. that it becomes not only very strong um, but also fireproof. There's, um, there's this um, newish library in the Docklands that's made yeah. of that kind of timber, I think, if any listeners yeah. want to go and that's have right. a look. Mm. Yeah, cross-laminated or, or engineered timber. Um, and I guess obviously the question there is um, how 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 um, heavily would it exploit the renewable uh, source, um, you know, the wood. <laughs> um, but I think it can be made from plantation timber, mm. um, which can which can grow very quickly, uh, you know, pine and, and, and such. So it doesn't necessitate um, logging in state forest. Uh, so that would actually be a fairly <clears throat> interesting reuse of um, some of the land on the periphery that is currently being contested for that dreadful kind of housing that you're talking about, turning that into plantation timber to increase densities in a in a you know a, a reasonable way, but also a very sustainable way um, within the metropolitan boundary, um, would be a pretty interesting, interesting approach, wouldn't it? But that that conversation is yet to be really had. So good on you, Mark, for getting it out there. Well, thank you, and I appreciate yeah. your support. Thank you. Well, on that question of the crisis, um, Swiss Ray put out a report last week, uh, which is one of the big reinsurance companies, and we know the insurance industry's sort of been the canary in the in the coal mine in terms of climate change for years, but they say the climate crisis poses an existential threat to public health, and without action, mortality rates and health care costs could soar. They go on to say the secondary effects of climate change, including migration, urbanisation, food security, nutrition and water scarcity, would damage public health. And on current trends, global temperatures are on track to increase about 4% rather than what Paris decided. So, you know, it is as serious as we're saying, isn't it? It is very serious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, as I said earlier, I can't put into words how serious this crisis is. That's, this that's is... coming from a capitalist organisation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I you know, uh, our, our 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 governments and our, I mean, particularly look at places like Australia. Our complacency is so um, high that it, we're not going to realise there's a water crisis until there's mud coming out of the tap. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, we know this. So, anyway, <laughs> in the meantime, we plug on. <laughs> which, which is happening in parts of New South Wales at the moment, of course. Is um, it really? You know, they, well, they've had a... You know, some towns can't use the water anymore. They've had to get yeah, wa- wow. bottled water in. Yeah, where, up there where the Murray-Darling is in, in crisis. Uh. Yeah. Mm. So it's already happening. Um, Kate, do you want to maybe at this point introduce uh, yourself to listeners who might not be regular listeners to the show and explain what your kind of focus is at the University of Melbourne? Um, yeah, well, I, I, my, my background is in urban planning um, and I became an urban geographer in the, in the School of Geography at, um, at Melbourne. Um, and my... Oh, look, my interest has always been in, in the possibilities of planning. Um how far can regulation um, and good policy go in um, you know, making making better 
<clears throat> more equi- more equitable and 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 maintaining culturally diverse cities. So my current uh, exercise um, that I've been working on, I, I had a poor, poor poor Kevin. I had a future <laughs> fellowship, um, which is which is this sort of strange scheme, <clears throat> very generously funded scheme from the Australian Research Council, um, and, and and the project was. Uh, a kind of a comparative analysis of urban waterfront development. So I was starting with Melbourne Docklands uh, and looking at, okay, pretty much every developed city in the world um, <clears throat> on a waterfront has docks or industrial areas. That's what we used um, waters for. They were very useful to, you know, sort of tip shit into and, 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 and um, <clears throat> very good for traffic, for ship traffic. Uh, and cities as much as possible located on, on water for those reasons. Um, so, as the decline in in, um, you know, in, in industrial and manufacturing uh, uses in the developed world occurred in the late 20th century, uh, and shipping technologies changed, you know, to to, uh, to container technology and. Uh, the ports needed to be wider and bigger and deeper and so on. There was this tendency for ports to move down closer to the sea or you know, sort of <clears throat> change their form in one way or another, which meant that the, um, the former ports, the former industrial lands that were and train lands and so on that were close to the city centres um, were becoming redundant, uh, either pushed or... or or um, you know, I mean, so, so, sometimes that process was um, <clears throat> was accelerated uh, because people started eyeing off obviously the great potential value of the land uh, in those areas close to the historic centre, very devalued um, at that point, and most importantly, almost entirely publicly owned or in very kind of piecemeal, um, devalued private and public holdings. So the capacity for uh, public acquisition and consolidation of that land. Uh, is very high, and what we get is this amazing opportunity of land that the city has almost complete control over, close to the city centre, so an opportunity that we're never really going to have again to build what that city needs. Mm. So my inquiry is really saying, okay, this is kind of like twin studies. Every, Every city in the world, really, in the developed world at least, um, has this same sort of set of circumstances, what do they do with it? Um, so in Melbourne Docklands, well, we know only too well. Um, <clears throat> it followed the path of the London Docklands, uh, and <clears throat> you know, Canary Wharf, shiny, shiny, extract maximum value um, from the land for for um, you know ma- massive massive investor and a lot of foreign ownership. So all, all, all the profits from that just went offshore or into private pro- pro- private pockets. Um, so then I look at Fisherman's Bend uh, and Sydney and uh, Vancouver and Toronto and the models that they've got on their waterfronts there and um, Berlin and Hamburg uh, and the way that they're approaching their waterfronts and then I finish with Copenhagen. Mm. So the book is called The Squander and Salvage of Urban Waterfronts and it'll be out next year. Mm, that's fascinating and that's really... Um Talking about acquisition opportunities like that is really interesting given what Mark's um, vision was that he was explaining to us before and how that might be a little bit complicated given the need to acquire Yeah, housing. well, it actually takes takes in 
all, all of the things that he's talking about in terms of you know, transport materials, I mean, the concrete, <laughs> the concrete issues is really, uh, they're really interesting. Um, I mean, all of these areas have got um, concrete plants, of course, um, that's you know because they were the the, the centre of, of of building and industry, um, and if those concrete plants get moved to the outer suburbs for the purposes of the redevelopment of this glam inner city docklands area, without any transition to new technologies such as CLT, such as the timbers that we were talking about then not only are we um, still going to be relying on concrete, but we're going to be relying on cement mixes, concrete mixes coming in from from the outer suburbs, which is the only place that they're going to be able to um, afford to relocate. So we're going to have cement mixes trapped in traffic on, mm. on roads, trying to drive into the inner city, which is where most of the construction activity is, is, um, is, is occurring. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's going to be a um, a major cluster. Mm. Um, and then they'll call for more roads and more wide, exactly, widen the road, etc. Exactly, yeah, and yeah. get the traffic off. It. You know, I mean, yes. Yeah, it might also be a bit of a case of out of sight, out of mind. Like when you push things to the urban periphery, it's easy to pretend that they're not there and they're not having yeah. the massive environmental impact that they're having. And then, and then, of course, there's consequences. I mean, like if, if, if a cement mixer is, is, is coming in the city and it's stuck in traffic and it's hot, they have to put additives uh, into the cement to, uh, to keep it fluid. Um, and every bit of additive that they add slightly weakens. The, uh, the strength of that uh, of, of that concrete. So, so we really have to start wondering about what exactly we are going to be building um, if 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 we don't get into serious transitional arrangements. Particularly from the twenty first floor. <laughs> Indeed, but this is the problem. We don't, you know, we don't think about transitional arrangements. I mean, I've, I've been. Could you just clarify what you mean by that? Oh, I've just been mulling over the, you know, the awful election result and thinking, <clears throat> I mean, Labor really did lose it in, in Queensland and they deserved to. There was no discussion about mm. transition. So all, all it was was if you don't like it, don't fire for us. <clears throat> it, I mean, all, all, all of it. What about people who are reliant on um, mining and, and, uh, and forestation? Uh, you know, as in, as in the Latrobe Valley, and um, <clears throat> you know, we've seen it a lot in Victoria. I mean, when people ca- when people are given a choice between v- voting for for a sustainable future or putting food on their kids' table, you know, I mean, I mean mm-hmm. of, of, of course they're going to go for the latter. What they need is um, a clear path, a, a clear transitional path mm-hmm. to another kind of economy, another kind of industry. Um, where was that? I mean, how long have we been talking about that down in Latrobe Valley? Yeah, how, how, how effective has this discussion and this constant promising of a transition to another um, industry um, been going on and the Trobe Valley and, and, and how inadequate is it? Yeah. Yeah. We just saw this with Dave Kerrin last week after the election, in fact. And oh, did you? Oh, he sorry. was No, wait, no <laughs> don't bother about it. It's worth talking about. <laughs> but they, but um, just that, you know, he's, he's putting up, for instance, the earth worker you know, type proposals and type industries where they're worker controlled and you do what workers and, and you bring jobs into those areas and um, you know, simple Absolutely. as that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I agree. Um, like the Adani convoy was, was great, but it's 
it would have been nice to also had a convoy of people going up there to talk to the people, hear their fears, reassure them that we can work towards something transitional, which doesn't require yeah. uh, digging coal out of the ground. Yeah, mm. absolutely. But the government need to have a plan. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, my point, <clears throat> I mean, that was a rant. Um, but but what, what, I'm, what I'm really trying to say is the, the holistic kind of approach that you have, Mark, is not contained within government. No. There, there, there isn't this joining of the dots to um, <clears throat> to assure people who are affected by policy changes that uh, they're not going to lose um, by the, 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 the discontinuation of one mm. kind of industry. Well, certainly now we've got a government that, in fact, wants to just open the mines and has no thought about transition anyway. Well, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so That's all the more important yeah. was for Labor to have won that, uh, and, 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 and they lost it. Um, so, you know, unforgivable. Yeah, yep. indeed. Indeed. Kate, actually, the reason, reason we got you on originally here today, <laughs> we haven't got anywhere near yet, but anyway, the, um, a mob called Development Victoria, which is the body the government's got building the new um, rail loops, etc., has also yep. been asked to convert disused government-owned land into new housing, and there's one in Coburg mm. where there's some area of affordable housing, but no-one quite knows how much. Uh, but um, you were quoted in The Age the other week as criticising this, saying that this land should be used, kept by the government, and in fact used for, um, you know, for proper housing, for public housing in particular. Um, comment on all that. Yeah, of course it should. Um, the, the government came up with a scheme, was it last year or even the year before now, under, under Minister Foley, the housing minister at the time, um, to trial... Inclusionary zoning, which is a form of um, requiring, mandating um, a certain percentage of public housing in a private housing development on public land. Now, this is a problem for, for a number of reasons, but inclusionary zoning is, is supposed to be a market mechanism. So it's supposed to be a planning mechanism that operates on private land, right? So you want to go and build you know, your, 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 your 20, <clears throat> 100 um, apartment block, uh, you need to provide a component of public housing within that block. Um, and the development the economics work out, you know, and we discuss those economics and we work out what is a reasonable percentage. That's in the most, you know, benign uh, market model. Applying inclusionary zoning on public land is kind of weird because <laughs> it's already public land. We don't need to actually provide a market it's, mechanism it's already to control the behaviour of indexes. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, so why are we not building 100% public housing on public land? Um, and, and you know, this, in this discussion of you know, should it be 100%, 50%, 30%, whatever, you know, it always comes up. It gets dredged up time and time again. And my view of it is always you must look at the context. It's you know, there's no sweet spot. There's no perfect social mix um, uh, you know, number. Uh, you, you look at the context. If it's a relatively small block of land surrounded by private housing and gentrifying housing, mainly owner-occupied, then putting in 100% housing on public land, if it's relatively small area, I mean, we're not talking, um, you know, Baltimore here, where we've got, like, you know, <clears throat> massive neighbourhoods of poor projects, you know, mainly black. We're talking about, you know, just a few. Um, then... then um, it, that would actually increase the social mix in the area um, by putting in more public housing. <clears throat> so, it, um, 
this idea of you know consigning people to poverty because it's 100 percent um, public mm. housing it's just complete you know scaremongering scaremongering nonsense it depends entirely on the context um, so that's what we've been arguing to the government that that we should be really assessing these public uh, land holdings carefully um, and where uh, where they are in gentrifying areas put as much as is conceivable of public construction on that block. Um, the fact that Development Victoria is, is, is carrying out this um, <clears throat> awful task of uh, preparing public land for private sale with this miserable um, uh, public housing component is... Well, they're not even, calling, craven. Not even calling it public, Kate. They're calling it affordable housing, in fact, which is uh, you know, always a very moot point. I never know, quite know what affordable housing mm. means. Well, affordable housing <laughs> is increasingly means um, 80% of market rental. Uh, and as we all know, um, 80% of an unaffordable rental is still unaffordable. Mm. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yes, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you sleep in a footpath in Elizabeth Street every night at becomes very relative, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realise, I think, as well, that the the demographic who are now entitled to public housing has widened greatly mm. because housing is so unaffordable now mm. that teachers and people who, who 20 years ago you wouldn't imagine in public housing now would qualify for public housing. You know, I, I think that's an important point as well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's this, you know, this key worker um, housing category, which is, is uh, which is the eighty percent um, of market rent, which is certainly yet yeah, not accessible to to people who are employed, um, the teachers and policemen, and oh, <clears throat> so be to, you know for, for us to think about the cleaners and the baristas and the you know and the um, <clears throat> people at the back. But uh, yeah, um, the the biggest commitment that has um, come from this state budget is a promise that Daniel Andrews made last year, that there would be 1,000 new public units built um, <clears throat> over three years, over the next term of government, 1,000 public, uh, public, public housing units. So we've got 40,000 households on the public housing waiting list um, <clears throat> and a very uh, brief calculation of mine um, worked out that we would, assuming that the waiting list doesn't grow and assuming that nobody dies or leaves public housing, it'll take 120 years, um, actually a bit more, 133 to yeah. be precise. There's a chance they might die in that time. Okay? A few people might die. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but I mean, you know, I mean, this is, this is insane. Um, we, we have, we have a, a government with, you know, a, a, a three and a half years ahead of them and very, very possibly another four after that. So they've got an open paddock with with the goalposts Mm. down the end. I mean, this state is, notwithstanding the reduction in stamp duties um, because of the very, very slight uh, correction, and I'll say correction, and Kevin and I can argue about that later, in the housing market, um, we are still an enormously rich in and uh, one of the richest countries in the world, and if we can't commit to building forty thousand public housing units over the next eight years, then I don't know what the point 
of having a government that calls itself that is. Mm. Yeah. Well indeed, said. Indeed what we're seeing, of course, is so much of what they call public housing anyway is becoming social or community housing and isn't really publicly owned. Anyways. Well, I'm talking about public. Yeah, I know, we are. And... Um, and in fact, in the budget, they did say public housing, but I haven't yes, yet been able to confirm whether they met up. I rang, I rang my source, but he's away till tomorrow and not till tonight. And I thought, hey, well, how selfish of him not to be home and how to talk to me. But anyway... I think, um, I think the government does mean public. I think that, that, that they've been whipped around enough by that. But that doesn't mean that um, community housing and various other forms of housing, such as co-op and community land trusts and so on, shouldn't be considered. And they should all be considered under the rubric of social housing, as in the case in, in, in North America and, and Europe. But <clears throat> that, that, that we, we shouldn't be um, eliminating the public housing c- yeah. category. Yeah, we've got to go, Kate. We're run out of time. Yeah. But um, in fact, I did want to talk to you also, speaking of Europe, about the situation currently in Germany, where there's been protests about rental situations. I'm sure you're aware yeah, of over there. Um, but we didn't get round to it. Look, we might get round to it. We might get you back shortly and I'm talk about time. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kate, look, thanks for your time so nice much. Nice talking to all okay. of you. Thanks, Thank Kate. You, Kate. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Kate Shaw. There from Melbourne, and we've got Mark. Well, we'll introduce Mark today because he's he's a, he's a he's a guest now. Mark Allen. Thanks for coming in, Mark. It is a pleasure. Good Anytime. luck with all that. We might follow up on it, in fact. Yeah, that'd be good. Mm-hmm. Eugenia, um, next week is transport, and the week after we're going to ask people for money. Radiothon, yes. Cool. So a final plug, everyone. Yeah. Two weeks to go. We need to raise a certain amount of money. What is it? One and a half thousand, something like that? Our to, show? Yeah. Um, oh, no, it's more than that, It's uh, isn't it? I think. Maybe 2,000? Two, yeah, it's over 2,000. Over 2,000 yeah, to keep yeah. our show on air. So if you like what we do and... <laughs> that might discourage them. <laughs> if you like what we do and if you support community radio um, and independent voice in the media landscape, then please donate. <laughs> Please donate, yes. Yeah. It's, it's a show that I can come on, which is good for me. <laughs> <laughs> and the best way to donate is just to jump on our website and go to the donate button on the homepage. All right. So on that note, see you all next week.